so a common experience I've had for doing ministry for uh, 15 years is that when you tell people that all they need to do is trust in Jesus to be saved, all their sins are going to be forgiven. They have eternal life. They can't outsend the coverage of God's grace. They have the beauty of the gospel by having Christ's righteousness given to them. They have an unlosable coat of righteousness on them. And that everything's forgiven, everything's accomplished by Jesus. By trusting in Jesus, people start getting a little unearthed and skeptical. And this is what I've heard so often. Wait, so you're saying, Nate, all I have to do is trust in Jesus and all my sins are forgiven? I don't need to, like, work or worry about my salvation or losing it? You know, well, if you're teaching that, Nate, then there's really just no reason to be good at all. There's no motivation to be good and to follow Christ and to be a disciple. Come on, Nate, you have to tell people to be good or else. You know, you got to really lay down the law. You know, you shall not pass kind of stuff, dark gatekeeper kind of stuff. You got to kind of lay down the law on these people so that you take it seriously. All this gray stuff, just people are going to go to Vegas and, you know, they got this free ticket into heaven. They're just going to send it up like it's 1999. People are not going to take anything serious. They're not going to take God serious. You got to just crack skulls. You got to lay down the law, dark gatekeeper deal, right? And, you know, otherwise people are just going to send it up and have a party, you know, just throwing themselves at people, just, you know, getting drunk, doing drugs, rock and roll, whatever, you know, people, that's what people think. They just kind of just paint this insane kind of picture. If you preach too much grace, people are going to lie, lust, cheat and steal, you know, neighbors slashing your tires, you know, any opportunity a person get away with it, they're going to steal stuff from you. You know, and, you know, uh, marriages are going to fall apart, Nate. You know, people are going to get harmed. If you keep on preaching this grace stuff, you know, mass hysteria will take place. Um, Got to get some more guilt sermons in there, you know. Try harder, work harder, strive harder, more and more and more. You got to be like, I got to be like a wrestling coach or a football coach or something. And I have to be honest with you, when people say this to me, although I don't feel good initially because I'm like, oh, that's sad that you feel that way. I'm, I'm actually somewhat comforted because I know I'm doing the right thing with regard to preaching. And you're like, well, how could you feel good about someone saying that to you? It seems kind of heavy-handed or harsh. And the reason why I'm okay with it on some level is because the precise same objections that I get for preaching too much grace are identical to the same accusations and objections the Apostle Paul got. They're the same. And so when you preach the gospel of God's amazing grace, you get objections like, wow, too much grace here. I can just do whatever I want. That's exactly what Paul says here in Romans 3, and we're going to see also in Romans 6. So let's see what uh, God's word has to say for us going verse by verse. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Because there was a belief that only the Jewish people could be God's people at that time. Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? Yes, the Gentiles also, since God is one. He is one. He is God of the universe. So uh, anybody can be his people by having faith in him, whether they have a, whatever racial background it is, anybody can come to Christ. That's the point here. Since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith, so he's, he saves and declares righteous those who have faith in him. And so the, the natural objection that comes up here in verse 31 is, well, do we th overthrow this by, uh, the law by this faith? By no means. Do we just like give up on everything because we're saved by faith alone, by grace alone, and Christ alone? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. 
So, yeah, Paul has just preached all throughout Romans 3 the gospel of justification by faith alone, that you're saved by trusting in Jesus Christ alone, believing, trusting, resting, and receiving Christ, that we're saved, justified, and forgiven. And so he deals with this accusation from that teaching, from teaching that amazing, shockingly gracious news to sinners. And so he's like, well, the objection here is, do we just forget about the law? Do we just overthrow the moral law of God? And the objection is actually as a title. It's got a kind of a fancy title. The objection he's dealing with here is the objection to antinomianism. Who's ever heard that word? I'm just curious. Few people. Oh, that, that was more than I expected. Wow, I'm, I'm impressed. You guys are smart, right? Um, no, anti, that's a big word, kind of a weird word, not something you, know, you want to say in a first date. It's kind of, kind of a little escalated there, you know? A little snarky. Um, antinomian. Anti, what antichrist is like against. And namas is a Greek word for law. So antinomian is anti-law. No law or against law, right? And so people are saying to Paul, you're teaching this grace stuff? So you're like against the law of God? Is that what's going on? You know, Paul is saying, no, I'm not. I, I believe in upholding the law. And so I just by the fact that I hold this grace stuff doesn't mean I get rid of the law or I stop trying or stop caring or stop trying to follow God's moral law that's written in the Bible and written on our heart. Um, he's like, no, we don't try to overthrow. We uphold it. And I love the way that Martin Lloyd-Jones has in describing this insight about preaching the gospel and how you know that you're preaching the gospel, like a common objection that I've went over. And this is the quote, I want to quote it in full. It's so good. He says, and my last word of, of all is, again, a primary word to preachers. Indeed, it's a word to everybody in the sense that if you're ever putting the gospel to another person, so if you're ever presenting the gospel of God's amazing grace, you're sharing the good news with somebody. You've got a very good test whether you're preaching the gospel in the right way. Well, what is it? Well, let me put it to you like this. If your presentation of the gospel does not expose you to the charge of antinomianism, you're, that you're against the law, you're probably not putting it correctly. What do I mean by that? It's just this. The gospel, you see, comes as a free gift of God, irrespective of what man does. Now, the moment you say a thing like that, you're liable to provoke someone to say, well, if that's so, it doesn't matter what I do. So he says the apostle takes up the argument here in this great epistle. He's talking about Romans. So he's like, that's how you know you're preaching the gospel. Someone says like, well, that means I can send all I want if that's what you're saying to me. He's like, if you get that objection... You know you're preaching the gospel. And it's amazing to me that Paul does not get this objection just once. He gets it twice in the same book. Romans. Incredible. You see this in um, this charge of antinomianism or that we should just not care about following morality of the law. Again, in Romans 5, 26 through 4. So this is Romans 5. We're going to go over this again. I promise when I go over this again, it won't be so repetitive. So... Romans 5.20, he says, Now the law came to increase trespass. The law makes people sin, it says here, which is very weird when we hear that. But where sin increased, so sin's increasing, doesn't, oh, God's going to send them all to hell. No, grace abounded all the more. Sin increased, God gave even more grace. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So you hear that, and you're like, whoa, okay. Verse 6-1, well, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? 
By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? So he's like, no, we're, we're not to overthrow the law. We're not to, to just say, oh, forget about following the moral law. We're not to do that. And so you know that Paul is, this is, this is a gospel he's preaching, this gospel of grace. He's, he gets this objection twice here. And I think for me personally, as a preacher and someone who has a anxious, restless soul who is always analyzing everything I'm doing in my mind, if I'm doing enough, I tend to be very type A and uh, just over, over an, I'm an overthinker. I even overthink overthinking, which is also bad. But, you know, I'm just, I'm, I'm a neurotic person sometimes, right? And so, the, it, but the gospel gives me so much peace and comfort because I know that this is the actual gospel message. It's not a works-based salvation. It's a grace-based salvation because if it were a works-based salvation and, and Paul was saying, all right, you got to do this and you got to do this and you got to do this to be saved, Right? then this objection would never come up. This objection only comes up with a grace-based salvation. So you know for sure, we know we have a certainty here. We have a clear knowledge that Paul is not teaching. Some people say Paul's teaching a works-based salvation that people just misunderstand it. But if he is, these objections would never arise. They would never occur if he is teaching this. And so, yeah, this is a good confirmation, a great evidence to us. The Bible is, in fact, teaching that all your sins are forgiven. It's not too good to be true. It is true. So we can be comforted by that great evidence that, yes, it is all by grace. And grace does something. It transforms everything. It transforms us better than the law. And uh, people struggle with that because you think, well, if I think about the law, it seems like that would make people good. That would be better at making people good or moral. But if you look at it under closer examination, what you're going to find is that's just not true. It is not true that the law makes people better um, moral. Um, so let's just kind of think about this for a second here. If you hold to a legalistic works-based salvation, then when you're doing, say, moral things, good things in your life, why are you doing those things? What's the reason behind doing those things? If you're in a workspace religion that says you've got to do certain things to go to heaven, you've got to do certain things to be saved from hell. Well, the real reason why you're doing things is so that you can avoid going to hell and go to heaven or get, you know, divine goodies, whatever it is, right? So that's really the reason why you're doing stuff. You're not doing things out of the kindness and gratefulness and thankfulness of your heart. You're doing things for an ulterior motive, aren't you? So if you're helping the homeless, for instance, someone who's less fortunate, my reason for doing that is so I can get more goodies in heaven or more stuff and I can feel even more prideful and good about myself while I'm doing them. Um, you know, you're thinking about saving your own hide. That's what comes to you because, you know, we're naturally selfish, we're sinful. Um, that's what it is. If you're thinking about yourself all the time, you're thinking about saving your own hide, that's what it means to be selfish. So this produces selfishness. And when I'm doing good works so that I can be good with God, then as I said, you kind of have this like, oh, I'm doing a good thing. I'm such a good person. Look at me. I'm helping these homeless people. All those other slackers at home on a Saturday. And I'm here feeding the homeless. I'm so terrific. I'm good enough. I'm smart enough. And doggone it, people like me, you know. And I'm just so wonderful. And I'm great. And so you get this kind of snarky self-righteous thing going on here. And you feel, you know, you're good about yourself. And, and so that's what a workspace religion does. It, it makes you selfish. It makes you self-righteous. It's all about the self, self, me, me, me. And not about the glory of God. God in his ultimate glory. And then we top all of this off to make matters worse. In the back of your mind, 
You're always worried. Back of your mind, you're always concerned. You're like, all right. So it's a fear-based relationship I have with God. If I don't do enough stuff, you know, to hell I go, or I'm not getting enough stuff in heaven, whatever you want to say. And so it be, produces this kind of fear, this fear-based relationship with God. And so you never know if you're being good enough. I had this conversation with this guy here, and, um, you know, he, he was held, held to a workspace religion. And I said, well, how do you ever know that you're doing enough? How do you ever know that you're, you know, passing muster? You know, there's not like something written in the sky that says enough is enough or when is enough enough. And he's like, you know, I never know that. And that causes me such great anxiety. And I said, well, the good news of the gospel is that Jesus is good enough for you. He's like, I've never heard that. So just like, I mean, just that's what it does is that it, it am I ever, by doing enough? Could I, could I do more? Is that enough to get me in? So it just produces this anxiety, this fear that just, you know, just is so difficult. You never know where you stand with God. You never know. And so the only way to deal with this, this is how people deal who are in a workspace system, in a legalistic system. This is the only way they know how to survive emotionally and psychologically is that you have to have a profoundly dishonest and authentic life and it's the only way you're going to get by. Because in order to get through your day, you have to kind of lie to yourself, you know? Okay, I think I'm, I'm doing enough, even though you don't know. I'm doing enough for God, so I feel okay. And you have to kind of protect yourself or you distract yourself. I don't want to think about that stuff. I'm just going to go to work. I'm not going to think about whether I'm doing enough. I'm just going to, you know, do my nine to five and try to do the best I can. And so, you know, you're just trying to distract yourself or you're trying to deceive yourself and you're living this profoundly inauthentic, dishonest existence. And so that's the fruits of a workspace system is a complete lack of honesty, authenticity with fear, anxiety, selfishness and self-righteousness. And you really break it down. It doesn't look so good on a workspace law-based system. And here's the kicker about a workspace system. If you want to be completely honest and authentic about living in a workspace system, then you have to admit and acknowledge, like, look, I mean, I sin every day. I sin every hour. I, I mean, probably more than that. For sure more than that, okay? I'll be honest with you. We sin all the time. You don't have perfect thoughts. You think jealous thoughts, bad thoughts, foolish thoughts. So you think all sorts of bizarre, terrible thoughts. They happen all the time. You're not perfect. I'm not perfect. And so if you're living in this workspace system, you're realizing you're failing all the time in your mind and you're losing patience with people every day, freeway and children. We know how that is. You get angry with people in your heart and... And, you know, God cares about the heart, right? It matters what's in your heart. He doesn't say like, oh, yeah, just, just forget about your heart. No, Jesus doesn't matter what's in your heart. It's not just all being robotic and, you know, being external without outward standards. Your heart matters to God. And so you're, if you're honest with what's going on in your heart and you know you're messing up all the time, you're just going to come to a point where you're just exhausted. You're like, look, I can't do this anymore. I'm just going to give up. You know, and so what people try to do in workspace religions, they try to rein you in and they just use like, you know, guilt, shame tactics to keep you in. And so it becomes a really traumatic, very difficult experience. And so then people just break down and they just give up into their own sinful natures and they just go the exact opposite. So people that are raised in highly legalistic, works-based households, they just go, you know, as far extreme, hell's bells kind of thing, as far possible as they can to the other extreme because they just want to like, you know, just escape it. Just get away from it. 
because they were shamed into being good. They're tired of that. And so they just want to be as bad as possible. You know, just kind of give it to the man kind of thing. Um, and the law in that way can actually make things worse. It makes people want to do the opposite of what they're told. Anyone who has children knows this intuitively, okay? When you tell your kids to clean up, they will do the exact opposite. Um, my wife was telling Kenny to clean up something, and he made it worse. It was like, it looked like it was snowing inside. You know those, those white things, what do they call it, styrofoam? And he just, he made it look like it snowed in the inside. She said, pick up one thing, he made it worse. So anybody who has kids knows that um, they do exactly the opposite of what you say all the time. It's great. Um, and, you know, I can't get too mad at my kids because, let's face it, if you, you know, I'm a rule breaker, my wife's a, a rule keeper, so it's from me. So it's like me getting mad at them, it's like getting mad at myself because I'm, where they get that from. Um, I remember when I was 13 years old and my parents told me not to listen to Metallica and Alanis Morissette. They said, no, this states how old I am, right? They said, don't listen to that. Oh, you got to listen to Christian music. Well, I never wanted to listen to Christian music, okay? That stuff was terrible. No, I'm just kidding. I did the exact opposite. I mean, and then I made it worse. I listened to more Metallica and Alanis Morissette and then I went into like Nine Inch Nails and Marilyn Manson. It got even worse. It didn't get better, right? So, I mean, that's where my kids get it from. If you want to know why they're so difficult in the nursery, just blame me, okay? <laughs> so the law makes some of us, I mean, in my case, more rebellious. It doesn't make us good. Um, and so here's my point. In these high-demand de uh, religions and works-based religions, they don't produce morality. They produce immorality. Um, but I, I do want to give some ground here because, like, I've seen works-based systems around about in our society, and um, I do want to say, like, they appear good, and they appear orderly on the outside, but they're rotting morally on the inside. Often, a workspace religion will have people who almost appear robotically good. Um, when they are by themselves, though, um, and they're in their homes where no one can see them, where no one can observe them, away from status and culture and work, maybe they're living in fear, having anxiety, depression, hitting the bottle, uh, addicted to, to all sorts of medicines, um, misusing medicines, I should say. I gotta be, <laughs> it's like I'm against medicine or something. <laughs> not against medicine. You won't believe what Pastor Nate said. No, I'm not against medicine. I'm just saying misusing, all right? Um, you know, developing pride and self righteousness in their hearts and mistreating their spouse, involved in bad behavior on the internet. And so, yeah, sure, they can. They can make it look externally clean, so these self-righteous religions, these works-based religions, can make it clean on the outside, but inside it's rotting, and that is exactly what Jesus said of the Pharisees of his day. He said, yeah, they look great, look pretty orderly and structured. Inside they're rotting. This is what Jesus says in Matthew 23 through 27 to 28. They don't have it on the screen because I changed my sermon the last minute. God bless those people back there. God bless them. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and are all unclean, so that you are also outwardly appearing righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. And so the irony of ironies here is that grace doesn't produce immorality, it produces morality. It produces loyalty and heartfelt change to God. 
And I have met some people in my life who are in these works-based religions and systems who tell me it produces this dishonest, lying culture, and it produces despair and depression and shame because they just, they can never measure up. And I've met people who just say, you know what, I just rebelled from the very beginning. I just took off. You know, I'm done with that. And so this is true when you preach law, when you have a church that preaches law and says, do this, do that. And every Sunday you leave depressed because the pastor is saying, you're not doing this good enough and you're not doing that good enough. Try harder, work harder, strive. And people are exhausted. That's what legalism does. It beats us down. It exhausts us. It makes us want to go the other way. And here's a real letter from a real person um, as opposed to a fake person who was under legalistic preaching. And this is what he heard writing to another pastor who preaches grace. This is what he described of being under a pastor who just jams law down people's throats every single Sunday. He says, over the, the last couple of years, we have been really struggling with preaching in our church as it has been very law-laden and moralistic. After listening week after week, I feel condemned with no power to overcome my lack of ability to obey. Over the last several months, I have found myself very spiritually depressed to the point where I have no desire to even attend church. Pastors are so concerned about somehow preaching too much grace as if that is possible because they wrongly believe that the type of preaching leads to less devotion and loyalty to God. But I can testify that the opposite is actually true. When only law is preached, it leads to the realization that I can't follow it, so I might as well quit trying. At least, that's what's happened to me here. So the law demands, it criticizes. Does that produce devotion? Criticism and demands? Does that produce intimacy and relationship with God? No, only grace does that. So what, what builds greater intimacy with your relationship with your spouse? Just try to criticize and nag them all the time. Is that, does that make you want, oh, I, oh, I'm doing this wrong? Oh, I love you so much. No, that grace creates intimacy and love and builds relationship. And so if we want to build a greater uh, relationship and intimacy with God, it's not him nagging us. It's not like that. No, it's this unconditional gospel, the grace of the gospel of, of Jesus loving us and dying for all of our sins and, and doing everything for us. And when we understand this, we don't have to fear God anymore. We don't have to have anxiety or anything like that. We're not um, constantly thinking about ourselves. We're working on ourselves and thinking about saving ourselves. We're not thinking about that. We're, th we're free to think of other people. We're not thinking about how to be good, uh, you know, so we can get into heaven or anything like that or earn salvation. We're not thinking about these ulterior motives because Jesus did it all. He earned it for us. We didn't earn anything. It was all him. And that produces also no self-righteousness because Jesus has accomplished everything for me by his life, death, and resurrection resurrection by his perfect life. And so this takes away all that self-righteousness and it brings humility and honesty to our lives. We can't think we're better than others because we're entirely saved by the grace of God. So this breeds, as I said, honesty and honesty about our shortcomings. We don't have to be perfect or pretend like we're perfect because Jesus was already perfect for us. And I mean, this is just so freeing and exciting and liberating. I, I can't you know, tell you how, how much it means to me personally. I can share with you all uh, every Sunday how I struggle with sin too. I don't have to hide that from anybody. I can be free and transparent and open. I don't have to pretend like I'm good enough. Jesus was good enough for me. 
don't have to put on a fake show for you guys to try to like, oh, he's a pastor. He has to be righteous and stiff and the law of God. I don't have to be like that, you know? I don't have to be fake like that. Uh, I don't have to be defensive or inauthentic with anyone. And I love the way... Um, that Pastor Steve Brown, who's a, a great anti-legalistic preacher who preaches grace just terrifically, he talks about in the situation uh, how the, the gospel frees us from being defensive and honest, even with those who are really critical towards us. Um, so after um, speaking at uh, a, a large group of people in Steve's denomination, um, Steve Brown was approached by this young guy. They're always young. Um, <laughs> you know, in a suit, perfect suit, you know, stiff, you know, you know, kind of like, you know, just had everything in order, perfect suit, perfect presentation, a very serious, severe appearance, you know the type, right? And in a full suit, and he was, he came up to Steve and said, you know, you want to say what another, you want to hear what another pastor has to say? <laughs> I think Steve Brown's like, no, not really, <laughs> but you want to tell me anyways, so just tell me. He's like, I felt like your speech was arrogant, rude, and prideful. And the moment uh, Steve replied with a genius response, he says, bingo, you have read me well, but I'm better than I was. Your heart would have been even more grieved five years ago. And it would have been even more grieved if you knew me the whole, the whole truth about me. <laughs> so the man ended up loosening his tie because, you know, he was transparent and open. He ended up cal calming down a little bit. And they were able to talk uh, in depth about grace and the gospel for an hour. And uh, so Steve has now... Uh, dubbed this the bingo retort, right? And here, here's how it goes. I'll give you just a few kind of cute examples. You're wrong. Bingo. I'm wrong at least 50% of the time. You're selfish. Bingo. My mother said the same thing and my wife knows it too. Yeah, that's true. You're not living up to your potential. Bingo. And, I'm a, and if that's okay with you, I'm not going to live up for my potential a little bit while longer. <laughs> You're not fit to be a Christian. Bingo. That's why Christ died for me. So that's what grace does. It, it, it leads you to an honest, free, happy, and open existence. It breaks down our defensive and prideful nature. And I'm not having to carry down the burden of the weight of the world of me being perfect. Because Jesus already did that for me. I can be honest with my mistakes and not defensive. Because God loves me even though I sin and he'll never stop loving me. And God loves you and he will never stop loving you even though you sin every day, every hour. And the crazy thing about this is this makes us more uh, love God more. It brings more loyalty to our relationship, more commitment to our relationship with God and following Jesus Christ. I just love the way that Spurgeon puts it so aptly. He says, when I thought God was hard, I found it easy to sin. But when I found God was so kind, so good, so overflowing with compassion, I, I, I strike my breast to think that I could ever rebel against the one who loved me so and sought my good. So when you, uh, when you screw up and you let somebody down and they just act so loving and so kind and so forgiving, does that make you want to betray them and hurt them again? No, never. And so it does build this in intimate, deeper relationship. That's what grace does. And we build a deeper relationship with the God of the universe who's perfectly, maximally good and just. That makes us want to be more like God. That makes us want to be more like Christ. I love the way Machen put it, who, you know, was no libertine. He died preaching the gospel. Uh, he, like, had a pneumonia in um, South North Dakota. I mean, if you think this is the snow is bad here, go to North Dakota. 
<laughs> There's a reason the population is low. Um, <laughs> and he did preaching all throughout there. And he kept on preaching the gospel. And he died preaching the gospel. So this guy is not like some libertine going out to Vegas, you know, hitting the, hitting the slot machines 24-7. No, he preached the gospel and, and the point that he killed himself. This is what he says. The gospel does not abrogate God's law, but it makes men love it with all their hearts. So we uphold the law of God. And that's why I preach the gospel every Sunday. Because I want you all to be better. Not in the self-righteous kind of way, but I want you guys to be reminded about what Jesus did so you can show the grace and mercy to others that he's showing to you. That's why we do communion frequently here at Corner Canyon Church to remind us of the grace and mercy and forgiveness that we have in Christ. That we don't move beyond the gospel, we move deeper and deeper into the gospel. Let me ask you, what is the, the heart of the law of God? Anybody who's read through the Gospels can know that it's love of God and neighbor. That's, you know, love the Lord God with your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. That's the core of the law of God. That's, that's its moral core. And so, I mean, it's clear, like, if you love God, you're going to love people who are made in the image of God. You're going to love those people, because if you love God, you love His image bearers. And what's so interesting is the Apostle John confirms what Paul says here. He says, the reason why we love God, the reason why there's any transformation, Christians don't live perfectly, but they do live differently. The reason why there's this transformation in our lives is not because of, you know, 10 steps to, you know, improve your marriage or life tips or Dave Ramsey. I'm not, I'm not knocking that stuff. I'm just saying that without the gospel, those things do nothing, Right. But the reason why we love is because God first loves us, shows us grace, kindness, and mercy. I love the way John puts it. 1 John 4, 19 through 21. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he does not love his brother whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this is a commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. So, you want to know how to love a difficult neighbor or someone difficult at work? Think about how God first loved you and sent his son to die for all of your sins. You want to know how to deal with a difficult spouse? Or maybe you're the difficult spouse. You just don't want to admit it, huh? <laughs> so, that's the interesting thing about marriage. You never really know. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. You do know. That was weird. Um, <laughs> don't know where. It's clearly not my notes. Um, but you're having trouble in your marriage, okay? Whatever, all right? And you want to know how to get, improve that and show more grace and forgiveness, think about God's first loving you. And so that's what it is. It's reflecting on God's love. And you know, when you do that, it, make, it transforms you. I mean, Peter is the greatest mess up in church history, I feel like, you know. Denied Jesus three times, and he's denied the gospel in the book of Galatians. I mean, this guy is pretty, pretty much a train wreck, and it's on the pages of the Bible for us all to read. It's great. Um, and this guy, you know, he, after those sins, he didn't go on sinning even more. He died. He was crucified upside down for Jesus. He gave his life for Christ. He didn't just like, oh, okay, I'm going to party up now. Jesus is going to keep on forgiving me three times, and then a fourth time. It's all good. No, it changed him. It transformed him. And, you know, I believe he did that because he thought about how much he betrayed Christ, how much he let God down, and how much God just continued to love him and forgive him. And when I think about myself, and I think about all the stupid and dumb things I did as a teenager, um, yeah, I wasn't always a Christian, so 
it was, you know, my teenage years were especially rough. But I think about just the stupid things I did and said, and, you know, even as an adult now, because, you know, I'm so perfect now, right? I just, you know, I think about all the things I've done wrong and the sins I've committed, the, the, the people that I've let down in my life. And I think about how much God doesn't stop loving me. How much he's forgiven me and just lavishes that and doesn't stop at any point. And I think about that and that makes me want to be better. It's not repeating rules and shame games or, you know, demands. It's the love of God that transforms hearts so we can give glory to God in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let's pray.